Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to Ponder, January 22nd. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, and Acts chapter 3, verses 25 to 26. The Bible tells one cohesive story. Specifically, the Bible tells the story of God's redemptive plan and work. All of its parts are reconciled in this narrative, and therefore the Bible's story coalesces in a Redeemer, and that Redeemer's name is Jesus. When Jesus rose from the grave, the Bible tells us that he taught his disciples to see their Savior throughout the Old Testament. Christ understood that God was redeeming and reconciling the world to himself through the Son, and he further knew that this was the point of the Bible from start to finish. We see this goal of Scripture materialize quite quickly in the book of Genesis when we read the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15. The Proto-Evangelium is the first, hence the term proto, Proclamation of the Gospel, hence the term Evangelium. From this point forward, the Bible records for us the story of God bringing this prophecy of the seed of woman who would crush the head of Satan to materialize. Our goal for this week is to see some of the more explicit places where this Christ is mentioned or prophesied about in the Old Testament. Today's passage is a famous one that details the covenant God made with Abraham. It is given in the context of God's promises to Abraham considering his offspring. At this point in history, Abraham was advanced in years and without any descendants. God's promise to Abraham is that he would provide offspring, and through that offspring, all nations would be blessed. The beauty of the Bible's unfolding story is that we often do not have to interpret prophecies ourselves, as subsequent scripture often tells us exactly what the previous text meant. This is the case today when we read Peter's words in his sermon to the Jews in Jerusalem, saying that this prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. It is through Jesus that all nations are blessed, and Jesus' earthly arrival comes through the lineage of Abraham, and these people are known as the Jews. Peter tells these Jews that God raised up a servant who would bless the nations, and God, by virtue of his covenant with Abraham, sent Jesus to Jerusalem and the Jewish people first. This means that the promise made all the way back in Genesis 12 is fulfilled in the person of Christ. When we interpret this prophecy without Christ, we get some very strange conclusions indeed. God does not promise to bless people who reject Jesus. In fact, the Jews who were alive in Jesus' time were largely condemned to death precisely because they missed the significance and identity of the Messiah. In fact, the destruction of the temple and the ransacking of Jerusalem, which took place some 40 years after Jesus' earthly ministry, commenced as predicted by Christ and meant to be understood as a sign of God's indignation and displeasure with the Jews, who refused to honor and follow his Son, who was in their physical midst. When Jesus says in John 14, quote, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He did not mean no Gentile. He meant no one, including the Jews. God will not bless any people, Jew or Gentile, that rejects his Son. Only those who come to God through Christ by faith will be blessed. This is not a promise that is fulfilled in a mortal nation. It is a promise that materializes in a person who would build a people for himself of every earthly tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ was undoubtedly on God's mind when he spoke to Abraham. And Christ must be on our minds if we are going to correctly interpret the promise of Genesis 12. 
Point to ponder, January 23rd, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, and Luke chapter 3 and verse 3. Genesis 49 records Jacob's blessings to each of his sons. This is an interesting text for many reasons, but perhaps the most interesting to me is that the main character of much of the last few chapters of Genesis, Joseph, is not the recipient of the greatest prophetic blessing. Instead, as we read Jacob's words, we are told that it is through the line of Judah that a king would come whose rule and reign would never end. Many of you know that one of Jesus' names is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. See Revelation 5.5. 5. This is not some poetic title as much as it is meant to call the attention of the reader to the lineage of Christ who came through the line of Judah. There are two aspects of this prophecy that are of interest today. The first is that this prophecy deals with a coming king. It is quite clear that Jacob has a ruler in mind with the language that he utilizes. Jacob speaks, for instance, of a ruler's staff and a scepter. Furthermore, it is clear that this king will rule over all people. The connection between this prophecy and the prophecy in Genesis 12 is clear. Through Abraham, all nations will be blessed, and now we read that their blessing will materialize in the form of a king who would rule the nations. This idea of Christ coming to redeem the world is central to the redemptive storyline, and it was obviously on Christ's mind as well. After all, two of the verses that record some of his final instructions deal with his desire for his children to take the good news of him and his gospel to the nations. In Matthew 28, Christ reminds us that he has all authority, he is king, and that his children are to go and make disciples, teaching them how to obey him in as their ruler. Teach them all that I have commanded you, he says. In Acts 1.8, we again see an international flavor to Christ's words as we read that Jesus expected, and still expects, his followers to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Why is this the case? Because Christ has come to rule the nations. He will be successful in redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and his commission will result in the nations coming to bow at his feet as their Savior and Lord. So, Jacob is clear that Jesus will come from Judah, and then Luke tells us that this is exactly what has happened. Some folks get really bored and discouraged with genealogies. I understand why they can be frustrating, but when you see the beauty of the way Luke 3 informs and reconciles so nicely with Genesis 49, I pray that you will have a better understanding of its purpose. In Luke, we are told that this Jesus, who was prophesied about by Jacob to Judah thousands of years prior, did in fact descend from Judah's line. The lion had arrived in Bethlehem, and this meant that all of the expectation was realized as Luke and three others recorded for us the life of Christ in the Gospels. Point to Ponder, January 24th, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, and Luke 1, 35. Today's prophecy is one of the most obvious messianic prophecies in all of Scripture, but that doesn't change its magnitude and unique nature. I do not consider myself a biology major, nor do I endeavor to get into an in-depth study of how mankind procreates. But suffice it to say, virgins do not conceive in God's creation. The reality of the matter is that a virgin giving birth is an absurdity, that is, unless the power and plan of our great God deems it necessary. Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years prior to Christ's arrival that a virgin, a virgin we now know as Mary, would conceive and give birth to a son who would be the Messiah. This man appeared in time, and we worship him as the Savior of the world thousands of years after his appearing. His coming forth from Mary was only a taste of what he would accomplish as our great God. The nature of this prophecy is clearly messianic, and its fulfillment is clearly described by Luke in chapter 1 of his gospel. So I want to spend a bit of time on the necessity of this virgin birth. 
Why did God see fit for Christ to come forth from a virgin? Was the point simply to demonstrate his power? Was this a neat way to show his glory? Or was there some other, deeper, and more important reason for this miraculous birth? Years ago, the great theologian J. Gresham Machen wrote a book entitled The Virgin Birth. The book is one of the best works I own. Incidentally, Machen also wrote the article that we gave away for the resource of the week this past Sunday. Machen was a true scholar and, more importantly, a champion for biblical inerrancy. In his day, many theological liberals attacked the concept of the virgin birth as totally untenable and ridiculous. Whereas unbelieving liberals thought the virgin birth was a ridiculous, fanciful addendum to the coming of Christ, Machen makes a compelling case that his coming from a virgin was necessary for the biblical storyline of redemption to unfold as God had purposed from eternity past. One of the reasons Machen gave for the need of the virgin birth is grounded in Christ's innocence. We know that all men are born as fallen and corrupt precisely because the seed which conceived them is already tainted by sin. Romans 5 tells us that death, the consequence of sin, entered the universe through one man and spread to all men, and the reason why this is true is because all men descended from the one man, and that one man, Adam, was a sinner. Adam simply passed on his sinful state to his children, and now, thousands of years later, we are still brought forth in our iniquity. The reason for the virgin birth, therefore, was to demonstrate and proclaim the fact that Christ was not conceived by a sinner. Instead, we read that Christ was the product of God, himself meaning that the sin which gave rise to the seed of the person of Jesus was not tainted by everyone else's sin. This fact was ensured by God through the utilization of a virgin, thereby removing all doubt that Jesus came from man's corrupt line. While Jesus was truly man, he was not a fallen man, and this is because, in part, Christ came forth from a virgin. Point to Ponder, January 25th, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and Matthew chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. Today's text records the prediction and fulfillment of Jesus' birthplace. Before we dive into the substance of our devotion today, I do think it interesting to see the cohesion between this passage and the prophecy we read in Genesis 49 from the lips of Jacob. In Genesis 49, we read that Judah's line would produce Christ, and now in Micah 5, we see Judah's name arise again. I only point this out to further betray our conviction that the Bible is a remarkable book that precisely and consistently reconciles all of its parts. This is in stark contrast to works written by men. Even men who are believers are prone to disagreement over theological concepts and abstracts. We are all beset by the limitations that our human condition and our fallen state place on us as individuals. This stands in stark contrast to the cohesion of the Bible, which, by the way, was slowly constructed over thousands of years by numerous individual authors. Now, on to the substance for today. We read in Micah that the Savior of the world would arise in Bethlehem. This is not news to us, of course. We grew up reading the Christmas story, and we are certainly very familiar with the city of David. But this is only because we know how the story would culminate. In previous days, the city of Bethlehem was known for King David, and this most certainly gives rise to part of its significance. Just as Christ was the predicted and eternal successor to David, so he would make his earthly appearance in the flesh in Bethlehem. But this king was different. We see a glimpse of the nature of King Jesus in Micah as the Bible tells us that this king's origins are, quote, of old. This is a flowery way of saying that the king who appeared in Bethlehem was not brought into being at that moment in time. Instead, this king would take on flesh and dwell among us, but in doing so, he would descend from his glorious dwelling on high. 
He had been exalted above creation as the creator of all things, far prior to his condescension to us. In other words, the king was the eternal God in the flesh. Whereas David would come and go, the king would stay forever. Whereas David had failures and sins, this king would be perfect. Whereas David would write some of God's words, the king is the word of God. And whereas David expanded the territories of God's people somewhat, this king would see to it that his rule and reign would extend over all nations and to all people. When you stop to consider the gravity of Christ, it is simply amazing that he would appear at all, much less in a nondescript town like Bethlehem. Micah's prophecy might have seemed outlandish and unlikely, but in God's providence and by his inspiration it was entirely accurate. What a mighty, kind, servant-hearted, and triumphant God we serve, a God who was brought forth in Bethlehem, just as the prophet foretold. Point to Ponder, January 26th, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and Matthew 13, verses 13 to 15. Some people quibble over whether the statement made by God in Isaiah 6 constitutes a prophecy. To be transparent, I'm not really sure where I land on the issue, but the teaching that we have from the utilization of this verse in the New Testament warrants a mention. Isaiah 6 is a famous passage that is so often utilized in missionary commissioning services. If you remember, the prophet has the distinct blessing of seeing the Lord in his glory. The response is typical of mere mortals who see God's glory, as Isaiah falls as though dead and subsequently confesses his sinful heart. After this interaction, the prophet hears the question from on high, Who will go for me? And Isaiah answers with a resolute, Here I am, send me. This is where we typically stop, and that certainly is understandable. The passage, as cut off after Isaiah's response, is incredibly encouraging, but the interaction between the father and Isaiah doesn't end with Isaiah's reply. Instead, we read further that God agrees to send, and then warns the prophet that his ministry would be less than fruitful. In fact, the statement by God is sobering as he tells his servant that the people would never heed his instructions and warnings. Now, when we arrive in the New Testament, the one that all the prophets pointed to has arrived, and yet his ministry is largely rejected by Israel. How is it that we could believe that the true king of the universe has come, and very few will give heed to his words? The answer, according to Christ, is that this is exactly what the Jews have done from the beginning. This theme is throughout the New Testament. Jesus told a parable about an owner of a vineyard who sent servants to speak to those who were working the ground, only to have them kill his messengers. We read that the Jews rejected Christ, crying out for his crucifixion, and we also understand that most of the prophets that God sent to Israel prior to Jesus' arrival were rejected as well. This is why Jesus pulls from Isaiah's statement to confirm the validity of his teaching. In fact, Jesus spoke in parables because of the condemned state of the nation of Israel. While they physically heard what he was saying, they didn't have the desire or ability to comprehend his words. And this is precisely because of the sinful nature of their hearts. Jesus knew that the work of the prophets foreshadowed his ultimate work. He wasn't surprised when he was rejected. In fact, it was clear that this was going to happen, and we shouldn't be surprised when the world rejects us either. This simple truth is that those in darkness hate the light. They always have, see John 3, and this means that they will do all they can to discredit and remove those who represent the truth. Isaiah lived this truth. Jesus embodies it, and we are warned that we will follow in those same footsteps if we endeavor to speak boldly to those who hate God. I suppose the point of this devotion, oddly enough, is to provide you with some encouragement. Don't base the effectiveness of your ministry on the world's reactions. They are going to despise your message until the Lord opens their eyes. 
He very well may use you to draw many into the kingdom, but he will also likely use you to further condemn those who hate and reject him already. This is a painful sight, but it is the overwhelming reaction of the lost, and therefore we ought not be surprised when they treat us like they treated Jesus and Isaiah before us. Point to Ponder, January 27th, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10, and John chapter 12, verses 18 to 21. Why did Christ come? Well, John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, tells us that Christ came because God sent him, and God sent him because God loved the world. The term world there means the nations. It denotes people from every tribe, tongue, and geographic location. Jesus came to redeem people from all corners of the globe. We see this quite clearly in the mission he gives the church. We read it in his teaching, and we see in prophecies about him the fulfillment of God's redemptive mission to bring people from darkness to light from all areas of this world. Again, there is remarkable cohesion with the rest of Scripture in our passage for today. We read, for instance, in Genesis 12 that it is God's design to bless all peoples through Abraham. It was through Abraham's line, specifically through his descendant, the Messiah, that all peoples would be blessed, and now that it's come to fruition. Today, people from Asia and Europe and Africa and the Americas and the like all gather on the Lord's Day to worship the King. We have seen remarkable growth in the kingdom, even in our lifetimes, and this is a marvelously encouraging truth. Nevertheless, we must recognize that this was not intuitive to everyone in Jesus' day. There was a certain selfish and unhospitable tone that enveloped the religious world of Jesus' moment in history. The Jews were not necessarily concerned with the well-being of their brothers and sisters from other countries, and this makes Isaiah's words all the more stark to the reader of Scripture. Isaiah clearly prophesies that through Christ the nations will run to Jesus. We know now, of course, that this would happen through the rejection of Christ by the Jews, which in God's providence led to the crucifixion of Christ, which miraculously and providentially provided the very sacrifice would atone for the sins of the world, including the sins of the Jews. Stated differently, the crucifixion of Christ, which was the mission of Christ, was the means of God to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah and Genesis 12, among others. What is perhaps most interesting about this passage to me is the fact that the Pharisees recognized that this phenomenon was happening in their words in John 12. However, even as experts in the Old Testament, they neglected to put the two together. It seems so apparent to us that the fact that the world was coming to Christ was another indication of his divinity. Nevertheless, the unbelieving Jews saw it as a problem. As such, they stand as a clear warning of what an unbelieving heart can ignore. Brother and sister, don't neglect the truth, even if it is uncomfortable. Oftentimes, God confronts us in our sin and negligence, and it is our responsibility not to harden our hearts when these things take place. Instead, may we look to Christ and see His glory and majesty, even if we don't understand or comprehend all of His plan. May we not allow our pride or our lack of comfort with who Jesus is or what Jesus says distract us from following Jesus, who is obviously God in the flesh. Point to Ponder, January 28th, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4, and John chapter 1, verse 23. If it seems like we are using Isaiah a good bit this week, we are. The book of Isaiah, in particular, has so many wonderful prophecies and allusions to the person of Christ. One amazing thing about this week's devotion is that we didn't even touch the most obvious prophecies about Christ in Isaiah, which are found in the servant songs, particularly chapter 53. It might behoove the reader to return to this marvelous book and read it, looking for Christ as we have seen that he can certainly be found in many places in Isaiah's words. 
Nevertheless, the point of today's devotion is to drill down on one final prophetic utterance concerning the coming king. This one actually predicts his forerunner. The Bible tells us that one would appear before Jesus came to usher in his ministry by announcing the presence of the Messiah. John 1 tells us that this prophecy did in fact come true in the person of John the Baptist. Jesus had high praise for John. In fact, the Messiah told his audience that there was no one greater in the history of mankind who was born among men than John the Baptist. Certainly, Christ had John's character and giftedness in mind, but also the fact that John's role was so special in redemptive history had to play a role in Jesus' statement. John's ministry was predicated on a simple message, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John's God-given mission was to prepare the hearts of the people by announcing the arrival of the king and imploring them to get their hearts right before God, so that they could be ready to hear and follow the Messiah who was now in the world. John knew something very basic. Those who were looking for God and ready to receive his instruction with humble and genuine hearts were the only ones who would benefit from the coming king. It strikes me that Jesus said the greatest preacher who ever lived had a message that was simply repent. We don't like the word repent in our world today. Many preachers and teachers claim that the idea of sin is discouraging and therefore not helpful. Many folks act as if they had no need to repent, and this isn't a problem out there. It is an issue in our county. How many people describe themselves as good people, or tell us that they are going to heaven because they are moral and do right? These folks would do well to heed the Lord Jesus' forerunner, and we would be wise to emulate John's message. Folks, there is a way to prepare hearts for the reception of the king, and that way is through hard preaching that causes people to see their sin, and therefore long for salvation from without. May we emulate the forerunner, and may God use us in a similar way to prepare the hearts of those who need to know Christ in our time. May we not back away from the hard truths, and may we proclaim what needs to be said in love, but fervently and with conviction, knowing that the king requires obedience and humility. And this only comes as we see our inadequacy and our desperate need for the salvation that he alone provides.